Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. It's good to see you this afternoon. If um, this is your first time around in a while or first time here um, ever, we are uh, making our way through a collection of Bible talks where we're exploring uh, what is the way of Jesus? What is this way of living in the world that the real physical person of Jesus Christ taught? He talked about and he lived for us when he lived uh, here on this earth. Um, we're exploring what this is because the world that we live in uh, doesn't really report this, isn't going to explain this for us. This is something we have to seek out, we have to search out, and we have to try to understand. So, uh, we're carrying on. This is the uh, second to last. This is the penultimate uh, talk in that collection. Uh, not to be served, but to serve is the title of this. And I'm really excited to be able to share a few ideas with you from it and for you to hear the concluding word in this next weekend. We talk about what does apprenticeship as discipleship really mean. So as a church family, we've been on a journey of thinking, what does it mean to be with Jesus? How do we actually shape our lives and create space and have time to be with Him? Uh, what does it mean for us as a church family to become like Jesus? What does it mean for us as a group of people to walk around modern-day London and to do the things that Jesus did? Yeah. So here's the question to frame up the next few minutes of our time together this afternoon. How do you practice self-denial in the age of self-fulfillment? It's what Jesus is calling us to here in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. He says, self-denial is my way. He says the Son of Man didn't come to be served by people, but to serve people and to give his very life for people. Jesus is the ultimate life of self-denial. And this will be a hard message for some of us to hear, living in this city of self-fulfillment. Everything about this town is full of self-fulfillment, self-actualization. Look inside, we're told. Figure out who you really are, we're told. And project that to the world, we're told. And here's Jesus. He doesn't seem like he's going to have any of that. He says, no, 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 the way is to deny yourself, is to actually make yourself. You choose to become the servant of other people. And in fact, if you want to be the greatest, according to Jesus, you make yourself to be the slave of all. Self-denial in the age of self-fulfillment. I want to introduce you to this tension just a little more. Um, if you're looking uh, for my knees, they were chopped off when I first read this quote in the last week. A guy named Scott Jetani, he says, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want a manageable, I want manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than to look 
at the, rather than to go through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not to look at the darkness of my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a, div- I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. Do you feel this tension? Do you, do you like want some of this, but like want some of that? Now I feel this tension. How can you not feel this tension living here? You're not, you're not alive to both realities if you're not feeling this. You're not alive to the realities of what God is calling us to and what he's inviting us into. Or you're not paying attention to the city around you. No, this is a tension that we have to be able to recognize, wanting the best of both worlds. Frankly, I want the best of both worlds. I want to follow Jesus, and yet I want my life to go well and to be as uncomplicated as possible. Yeah? I feel this. I want my character to grow, but I don't want to have to go through suffering to get it. I want humility. Like, I want a life where people be like, oh, there goes Tom. You know, he's a decently humble guy without humiliation, just going all the way with it. You want this. I I want patience. I I think so much of what's happening in my life today is because I really prayed for patience five years ago. (laughs) I want patience, but I don't want to have to wait. I I want to be generous, but I don't want to have to go without. I want some of this, and I want some of that. I want to hear God's voice in a way where I can recognize it at the start of the day and stay in sync with him throughout the day, but I don't want to get up early in the morning and pray. I want some of this, and I want some of that. I want the life of Jesus without the cross of Christ. I feel this. Do you feel this? Right? Here he is. The king of kings is saying, you want to come with me? Here's the path. Self-denial in a city of self-fulfillment. So what are we going to do here? How do we work this out? How can we live this in a city where it feels like everything is a mile wide and an inch deep? How are we going to be a type of people that embrace this self-denial? How can, how can we do this when it would actually be easier if we're very, very honest with ourselves? It would be almost easier if Jesus says, just go sacrifice yourself for me. That would probably be easier to do than to choose the way of self-denial, to choose the way of death to self and still be alive and have to do this in this place. It'd almost be easier if he's just saying, look, just go all the way for me. You know, well, boom, then it's over. We're with him. Yeah, we got to work some stuff out. But like, there's a sense to where that would be really, really all right. There's a sense to where he's actually calling us to something tougher than that today. Tougher than actually dying for him is being alive and not living for ourselves, but living for him. There's a lot to it. I think it's best if we even just pause right here and just ask that he would actually speak to us from this word. So let's pause. Matthew 20, open before us. Just an opportunity for you to be still and be quiet. Identify with this tension. And to ask that God would speak to you in the next few minutes. Our Father in heaven, we pray that prayer of Solomon. We, we pray 
that prayer of Samuel, speak, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 20, that we're going to consider the first three verses here, this interaction. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down to ask a favor. Jesus can read a room. What do you want? He asks. Grant that these two get thrones in the coming kingdom is her, is her question. It's her request. Jesus' response is contained in verse 22. And then it seems that it goes more places in verse 23 after that. Let's get comfortable with it. The two sons here, these sons of thunder, are the sons of a man named Zebedee. The woman who is speaking to Jesus right now, her name is Salome, and she is Mary, Jesus' mom. She's Mary's sister. So Jesus is talking to mom's sister. Jesus is talking to his auntie right here. That's the conversation. So the people in question are Jesus's cousins. Jesus has some of his 12 disciples are actually physical brothers and they're physical cousins. So Jesus is having a conversation with auntie right here, Salome, and here's her question. These two, let them get some choice seats, Jesus. Like put them in a good place, Jesus. And, and let, me, let me just submit to you, this interaction that you see right here in these verses, it's cowardly, it's commendable, and it's condemnable. Let me show you what I mean. It's cowardly. The you in verse 22, when, when Jesus responds to her question, he responds with the second person plural. So Jesus doesn't respond to her. Jesus responds by almost turning to the guys and saying, you two. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Can you imagine? I've been called son of a lot of things in my life. I've never been called a son of thunder, you know? Can you imagine? These are supposed to be some manly men, some real go-get-it guys. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, you know? And here they are acting cowardly. Probably a lot like some little boys that are going to inhabit the school ground in the next couple days. Not, not bold, not in daring, not going to go out. They're not going to live up to their name of sons of thunder, but they have a big question and they're just kind of hiding behind mom while she goes and asks it for them. It's so cowardly that when Jesus responds, he looks past her and he looks right to those two who clearly put her up to this. Maybe it's easier to deny the auntie rather than to deny the cousins. I don't know what the family dynamics and equilibriums are like, but he's clearly tuned into something. So they're cowering. And Jesus asks a question of these cowardly men. Do you have the courage? When sin affected humanity, it affected all of us in, in different ways. And men that are supposed to be protectors and providers... A sin affects manhood by leading some to a toxic overusing and an overabusing of leadership and authority. But the other way it affects humanity, specifically in men, is through this passive, cowardly, I'm just going to step back right here. And you can see it in these two. And we don't need to rise up in judgment against them because we're going to see how much we're like them in the next few minutes. So it's cowardly, hiding behind mom, 
Sons of thunder. Jesus is like sons of thunder, huh? You're running this one through mom. But it's also commendable. I want you to think about how commendable this is and how the two, they don't count each other out. You can actually have something that's very, very cowardly and very, very commendable at the same time. She humbly kneels before Jesus to ask a less than humble question. You see in this? Her question comes from faith in Christ and it comes from faith in his kingdom. You get this. She's not asking this question if she doesn't think his program's gonna succeed. And what's wild about this, he just got done telling them that he's going to die on a cross. So you think about the, the level of faith that's getting kicked off in these people. He just got done telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die on a cross, and I'm gonna be buried in the ground. And their response is when you set up this kingdom, do we get to be a part of it? You get this, it's cowardly, but it is commendable because they, they believe some things about Jesus. They believe what Jesus has been saying about himself. They believe about his coming reign after his death. They, they believe that there's gonna be a community on earth and it's gonna need some lordship over it and it's gonna need some governance. So, so they don't perfectly understand the concept, but they do think his vision will succeed. Think about how many parts of our own understanding of Jesus. We don't have him totally worked out and mapped out, but we do believe his vision will succeed. So first we recognize that true faith and real error can be mixed in the same heart of a real Christian. And this means in our bearing with one another, in love and growing one another and forming one another, we see real faith. We don't assume each of us are gonna be without error. You don't assume this about me. I don't assume this about you. We gotta have a community where we're working this out. We can't have a high view of Jesus. It can coexist with a high view of self. Look at this. Can great faith and great ignorance exist in one brain? Yes, they can. Look right here. So as much as we may wanna wag our heads, shake our fingers in dismay, mm, we need to ask the question Charles Spurgeon asked his congregation in light of this. Maybe they overbelieved this. Maybe they believed too much. Maybe they expected too much. The question for us in this room, do we believe this enough? Have we talked and we, have we thought and have we dreamed? Have you even like kind of had a moment where you almost fantasize about how great it's gonna be when Jesus is, is ruling the world and what it's gonna be like for 12 thrones to be set up and for people to be sitting in them and for him to be coming back to rule it all? And the fact that there's going to be a community and people will oversee that community and there will be ruling and there will be obeying and they'll be following and there won't be sin. Have we thought about this enough to where we've ever risked their mistake? Some of us, we, we, we don't even get to their sin because we're too far on the other side. Okay, like they came, they asked for too much. We, this actually commendable thing. They were so full of faith, they asked a foolish question. I gotta say, it's been one of my prayers in the last week. Like, Lord, help me to believe you so much and just ask for some inappropriate stuff, you know? <laughs> what about not believing in Jesus, thinking about him so little, not really, not really longing for his physical return and his reign on the earth to where we never get up to asking him for much to start with? Oh, that's, it's commendable. Something about it's like, 
hold this up as a model of faith, imperfect faith, but faith. But it's also condemnable. Cowardly, but con- cowardly, but commendable, but ultimately condemnable. Because Jesus will be lifted up on a tree. And John 19, 26 says that Salome was standing next to her sister Mary while Mary was watching her son crucified on a cross. Salome is going to see this king between two. And Salome sees this king crucified between two thieves. Now the crowns are coming, but the cross comes before the crown. This is ultimately a condemnable question. Jesus will be lifted up, but he's going to be lifted up on a tree before he's lifted up on a throne. And numbers two and three don't belong to him to be able to hand out this. He says this belongs to the Father. Jesus is like, you're going to have to seek the Father. You can't just come to me and ask for this stuff. He says to us in this room, we have to seek the Father. You can't just go to him and ask for everything. We have to seek the Father. Surprisingly, with such a contrast of mind, we do get the sense. He asked this second person, plural, you, to these guys. But you can't help but notice there's some gentleness marking the interaction. How about the next few verses? Chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. You got to wonder, why were they indignant? Were they indignant because... These guys were so unlike them, they just hauled off and asked Jesus such an inappropriate question. I submit to you, there's something about Jesus' interaction to them here. It's the you that's plural in verse 22 that actually leads us to be able to see it's, it, it's probably like they're all 12 standing shoulder to shoulder, condemned and guilty together for the vice of pride and the sin of vain ambition. All, all of them belong in the pride pool. They're all dealing with the same stuff. They probably weren't so upset because Jesus, they asked Jesus an offer question. They were probably so upset because they beat them to Jesus. It seems like their indignation comes from their own desire for preference and promotion. Their rebuke seems to be, you beat me to it. At times, I know I stand shoulder to shoulder with them. I wonder if we could even just imagine ourselves as we really are. Do we deserve to stand shoulder to shoulder with them as well? Guilty of the vice of pride. Guilty of the sin of vain ambition. The idea of one-upsmanships in all of us is just more active in some of us than others. And it's pressing in from our culture all around us. Jesus does something here as their rabbi. He helps tune them into his specific sort of teaching, how it's at odds with the world they live in. And you and I need a certain tuning in as well, a certain understanding of how what Jesus is teaching, of how it is odds with the world that we live in as well. Uh, Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, wrote a massive book that's very, very important called Our, A Secular Age. He talks about how the shift all over the Western world is from a a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. So this is within the teaching. Just hang with me here. The world in which you live used to be a world where all throughout Western culture, we adhered to an authority outside of ourselves to tell us who we are. And we live lives in communities yielded to an external authority. And then we would live lives conforming our lives to fit that authority that God had put over us. But now, because of some shifts that he talks about right here in this next slide, 
What's going on today is we actually live lives not in a culture of authority. We live in a culture of authenticity where the greatest ideal isn't to understand the real structure for a life in society and fit your life to it, but it's to actually figure out who you really are and live authentic to that true self. It's a new way to think. Freedom used to be freedom to want the good, to want the beautiful, to want the true, and the right to pursue it. Now freedom has become the ability to be whoever you want to be and to express it. And when this is put in the sexual category, it's repressive as it comes of you and it's oppressive if it comes from outside of you. And Jesus is saying to us here, this isn't true kingship. This is not how I'm going to run. This is not how you're going to live. The gospel says Jesus is Lord, but Western culture, the gospel according to Western culture says I am in control. I just got to ask you again, do you feel this tension? Are you awake to this tension? The fact that we live between these two calls for our soul. One saying, Jesus is Lord. The other one saying, no, 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 you're the Lord. You're in control. Do you realize the fact that Jesus is calling for all authority in our lives, but the society around us is saying, no, 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 it's all about being your true, authentic self. Think about it like this with me. We understand that God would ask people, in the two-thirds world to give up things in their lives. We sit here in these chairs today, and we can imagine Jesus calling for some other stuff from some other people, and it doesn't feel like that big of a thing or a sacrifice. But to call men and women living in modern Western secular culture to deny themselves we think that's too much. See, if we're not careful, our heresy can be hidden under the surface that we just wouldn't ask, that God just wouldn't ask people like us to live lives of self-denial. But he does. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28. So not so with you, he goes on. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the king. He has all power. He could have just eliminated them from his discipleship project and said he's going to find a few others and added a few more years to the ticker, but he won't. He won't cast them away. He won't throw them aside. He won't condemn their condemnable attitudes, but he will correct them by holding up his cross. And this is what he does with us in this room this afternoon. As guilty as we are of the vice of pride and the sin of self-ambition, he won't cast us aside. He won't throw you away. He will correct and he will correct through the cross. If you can hear him saying before the, before the, before the crown comes the cross and his word to these sons of thunder, he's almost saying comes your cross and comes mine as well. So he's a king, but a king crucified between two thieves. We want to talk about two thrones and that's not even the concern for him. It's the picture of Jesus' greatness. 
He teaches on real kingdom greatness, a vision of greatness that's against the vision of greatness set up around us in this world. A few different times in the Gospels, Jesus actually tells us why he came. He just spells it out for us really, really plainly and really, really clearly. And here in these verses, he gives it to us very, very simply and clearly. The Son of Man came to die. And for a lot of people, for a lot of people, for for some quantity of people living in the world, Jesus' call to follow him, the Son of Man came to die, For some of them, it means a real and physical death for them. These last few years have shown us Christians on the run for their physical lives because of Jesus Christ. Marginalized and oppressed peoples throughout the world. Think of our brothers and sisters living under ISIS. But you think about the fact that this sentence right here, the Son of Man came to die Think about what it meant for the people standing in the room. James was going to be the first martyr beheaded by Herod. Matthew was going to be killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was going to be dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was going to die by being hung on a tree in Greece. Thomas was going to die by being thrust through with spears in India. Peter was going to be crucified upside down in Rome because he didn't, count it, he didn't count himself honored or qualified enough to be crucified right side up like his Lord. So he said, you just turn it over. And John was going to be dipped in boiling oil and left to die on a rock in the Mediterranean. Or a young church community. I hope if it's ever called of us, like you would see me leading the way here, I hope if it's ever called of us, we would choose the same. We would choose the way of death as long as it's a death to Christ instead of life as long as it's life to this world. But here's what's radical about what Jesus is calling us to this afternoon. What Jesus is probably calling most of us in this room to, in Western culture, is not to a literal and physical death, but to a daily death death to self, and the path of self-denial. If we're honest, there's something that would almost be easier about this. John Calvin says this is discipleship. To say yes to Jesus is a no to a thousand other things. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to your individualism and self-autonomy. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to our rights over our time. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to our physical rights over the things that God entrusts to our care. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to sexual identity and the freedom to express it however we wish. Here Jesus is teaching a new community paradigm. He says the only valid ambition in this community is going to be the desire to make yourself great by making yourself the least. Philippians chapter 2 is a commentary on what you see here. Jesus, he did choose greatness, but not the way the world chooses it. He chose by going low and emptying himself through this form of becoming a servant to all, 
even death and death on the cross. Jesus looks at us feeling these big ambitions and passions out here. And Jesus says, you, you, you were made for greatness, but it's not the way those world around you runs about greatness. It's about going low to lift others up. The cross is saying, yes, yes, Jesus. The cross is saying, yes, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, however you want me to do it. It's been said that the, the Knight Templars uh, during the Crusades, we've been watching some Nicolas Cage movies at the house, if you can't tell. We've been, uh, we've been watching, uh, I don't know, uh, National Treasure, that one. Finished one last night. I think we started two. Started, and we'll get more into two later tonight. And uh, Disney Plus also has some TV show. It's like younger kids living. Now, I haven't really thought this illustration through, so bear with me. Um, living through like modern day National Treasure narratives and vibes. But it said that the Knights Templar, right, that allegedly were about the national treasure, I don't know, they, they were around during the Crusades. The Knights Templars, check this out, here's the point, they were actually baptized in their armor with their swords extended out from them and it never went under the water. Like, why would you do that? Well, you're saying like the, the grave represents everything that's dying to what it used to be and all the rights being turned over to the Lord Jesus. And these Knights Templars, like they, they baptized their physical bodies wearing their armor. Had to be some heavy dudes around for baptism, I imagine. But the swords were like uplifted out of the water as a way of saying all of this is unto the Lord except for this. You just wonder what like, authentic baptisms would look like for us, honest baptisms. What would we be holding up from the water, refusing to let touch the watery grave? You know? For some of us, it's a, it's a self-image. Like, everything unto the Lord Jesus, just not this. What, what, would, you, what would we be tempted to? For some of us, we're holding up an iPhone. <laughs> you know, like... All, Jesus, you get all of it, except my elbow to iPhone. This is with me, Jesus. Our bank account. Here's the login code. Everything, Jesus. All of this is unto you. I get rights over this, though. Baptized. Our sexuality. No, Jesus, I get to claim this one. I get to feel stuff and do stuff, Jesus. You get everything else. This is mine. And as absurd as it is to imagine, it's really practical. And it happens. And I'm not talking at you about this stuff. I am talking with you about things that I feel. You think it's hard listening to some of this. Try, try preparing a message on it to bring to other people and all the things the Lord brings to heart and mind over the last week. Self-denial. Dallas Willard says it like this, self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better known as death to self. In this, in this alone, lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. Uh, Lord just dropped a question into my heart as I read this. It's, it feels like we're not 
growing towards God or living towards God, we have to ask the question, how much growing and living of the old self is still happening? We look around our lives and it's like, man, this thing isn't looking much like Jesus right now. Maybe we just start right here and say how much self-denial is taking place. Are we trying to not even have the tension, just to have self-fulfillment and wonder when's Jesus going to come around? I was trying to think how to wrap this message up. I'm still thinking about it, to be honest with you, but I'm going to start going there. So when you get into this, it's like, how is this good news? You know, um, maybe, you, maybe you, you think that right now and spend a few days thinking about it. Like, how is this good news? There's a few ways we could try to land this. We could talk about, well, this is an easy yoke. Here's a powerful example. Here's a call to self-denial. These, these are ways that we can move on this and we can be inspired. Well, let me take a next step. You consider that a few weeks ago, we loved listening to Jesus talk about the fact that the way of this world has a, a heavy burden and a heavy yoke. And you're going to be tired and you're going to be crushed if you try to live with under it. You can actually just lump this into that and say he said he has an easy yoke. So here it is. Self-denial is part of his easy yoke. Take self-denial. We could also point to his powerful example. We could consider all those different things that we're living our lives for, bank accounts, sexual fulfillment, like having the best friends, having the best clothes, being like the certain body type or whatever. But then we could have to analyze, like how good of a God is that? And when you let that God down, is it good to you? Does that God love you? Does that God serve you? No, it's slavery. You exist to serve that ideal. And if you miss, it's bitter. Here's the good king. He says, I'm going to actually give my life for you. Ransom for many. John Calvin went way far here. He said, he's talking about the whole world. You're like, what? Not as Calvinist as I thought. So that's a powerful example. And you could talk about this. You could say, this is what it is. Look how far he went for you. Look how much he loves you. You could focus on the fact of self-denial. And we could just be really, really practical as we wrap this up. And we could think like, man, I live in a body in London. Think about all the ways that like, there are for me to like, deny myself, right? Parents in this room, lots of specific ways half-term break taught us that we can deny ourselves, right? Young ones, little sleeping ones, lots of ways we can learn, just multiple ways, self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. Every time the baby cries, self-denial. Friends with people, live next to other sinners, meet one of them, right? Lots of opportunities for self-denial. Roommates, lots of opportunities for self-denials. Even having a body with passions and hungers, lots of opportunities for self-denial. It's about those opportunities that we have to choose this thing or that thing that we see, oh, the tension is actually a gift. This is where we get to worship the Lord Jesus. This is a call to self-denial. Man, there's a lot here. But I'd like to focus your attention on the fact that this is simply a wise decision. And not only, simply in the terms of only, but think about how this is a wise decision. And what Jesus invites us to is beautiful. Think about Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus told us the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in 
his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Jesus gives us the idea of someone just walking around, seeing a flint of gold in the ground, kicking it back to National Treasure vibes, starts digging, finds actual treasure, goes home and sells it all. iPhone, gone. Clothes, gone. Maybe one, one outfit. Like car, gone. House, gone. Savings, gone. Future, gone. What people are going to think about all this, gone. In his joy because he realized what he had stumbled on was worth more than what was being offered in all the other stuff. Jim Elliott said this before flying a plane down to Ecuador and dying by the spear. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We think this is hardcore discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about it, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says, yeah, you got to count the cost. You got to count the cost of following Jesus. You also have to count the cost of not following Jesus. You have to count the cost of non-discipleship. So we have to weigh up the cost, the cost of not having meaning and purpose, the cost of a life spent trying to understand ourselves by spending ourselves, We have to add up the the cost of a non-committal existence. We have to add up the cost of vague conceptions of God with no traction in our lives. We have to add that up too. His call is to take up your cross and follow me. He's not asking us to anything other than deep happiness and deep fulfillment. We conclude here. David Benner says, St. Ignatius of Loyola states, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Sin is an unwillingness to trust what God wants is our deep happiness. And until I'm absolutely convinced of this, I'll do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God for what I need and what I want. Do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus wants your deepest happiness? Do you believe Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field that's worth saying no to everything else in joy for? Question as we conclude. Band, come on up. Come on, guys. The question for us in this room is simply this. What do you need to trust Jesus for today? I imagine conviction is a word that we feel in our hearts right now. Conviction over the thing that we don't want to be baptized with, the thing that we're kind of holding out on, that area or facet of our lives that we're trying to live everything else the way of Jesus, but we're trying to do this one piece our way. My question for you is what do we need to trust Jesus for today? Do you believe that Jesus is calling you to a deep sense of happiness and fulfillment? If not, then that's the thing that could be repented of. Sin is an unwillingness to believe it. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus is the good king? Do you trust that Jesus knows what he's doing? Do you trust he will bring you freedom if you will fully give your life to him? 
What do you need to trust Jesus for today? And there's ways that we can respond to this, okay? I'm gonna pray in just a moment. And we're gonna have some time to respond to this by singing. Maybe there's a conviction or a burden that God's making clear to you in your heart and your spirit. Do a courageous thing, everyone, Christian, non-Christian alike, however often you've ever come here. Come right over here, let some people pray for you. You can, t- you can just say what's going on or you can just walk up and just let somebody start praying. We're here to minister to you today. You don't have to just leave with these ideas banging around your brain. You can actually receive ministry in light of this. You can sit right where you are. You can stand right where you are. You can sing. You can reflect. You can respond. But let's be sure all of us take the next step in trusting Jesus for what he needs to be trusted for today. Yeah? So let me invite you to stand. As we stand together all across this room, maybe you want to open up your hands, sign of surrender. Maybe there's some things that need to be surrendered in us today. We just say, Lord Jesus, here are our lives. Here we are. We want what you offer. We want this treasure that causes joy and abandonment. So God, we pray that you would give it to us. For anything in here, though, that's holding us back in our spirits, false ideas about you, um, doubts that plague our greedy and grubby little hearts, God, we pray that you would overcome. So God, we open up the hands on our lives and we give you what's rightly yours. You made us. You have creator rights over us. Everything we have and everything we are, it comes from you. So God, we give it back to you. We have some time to stand here, to sing, to pray, to be prayed for, to worship. God, meet us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.